jump in. Hebrews chapter 6. We're coming to a, a section or into a section that has some difficulty. I mentioned before that we don't want to shy away from the challenging passages, but we'll do our best to navigate through these verses. If you need to borrow a Bible, you can raise your hand real high, and the guys will be happy to let you borrow a Bible. As always, we, we trust the Holy Spirit who inspired the authors to pen these words, and He is the one who can then help us to properly understand and apply these words. Uh, and before we get to the really difficult verses, we're going to be unpacking verses 1 through 3. I entitled our message this morning, uh, simply, let's go on, and it's just taken from that first verse where he says, let us go on to perfection. All right, so Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, if you're there, I invite you to stand with me. The writer records, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection in not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, of eternal judgment. And then he says very curiously, and this we will do if God permits. All right, we'll pause there and let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, another day Lord, a gift that you've given us, the gift of life, the gift of breath that we can gather here in this place that you've provided, your house. Lord, to get our eyes off of ourselves and to put them where they need to be on you, on your goodness, your grace, your greatness. Lord, um, really, we, we want to wish you a happy Father's Day. You are a good, good father to all of us. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. We trust, Lord, as we've opened your word, that there is something here you want to say to every single one of us, that regardless of where we might be at in our walk with you, uh, Lord, that you have a word for us. And so I pray that you'd grant us ears to hear, a heart that's tender and just ready soil to receive what you want to implant, what you want to water, that the truth of your word would grow deeper into our hearts and lives, that the roots would go down deep. And Lord, not only that we would understand these things, but Lord, that we would apply these things. And so we commit our morning to you, our time of study to you. We ask and pray this together in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. Take a moment, say hello. You can wave at somebody or elbow bump them or however we're greeting these days. This past week, I, I found myself in similar conversations with different people. Uh, the topic was the same. The people were different. But they were parents of younger children. And in those conversations, I was encouraging them to, uh, despite some of their maybe challenges and frustrations in the moment, to 
to fully embrace and fully enjoy the season uh, where their little ones are willing to snuggle and willing to play toys on the floor and, uh, and they're wanting to sleep in the bed and, uh, and need your attention because that season goes by quickly. As the saying goes, the days are long, but the years are short. And I have found now as a parent of older kids, that is absolutely true. And there's a part of me that enjoys this season, but I do miss the days when my kids were younger and they wanted all of those things to play toys and snuggle and, uh, and, you know, and just hang out. Uh, now, as uh, adults themselves and teenagers, uh, they have other interests. And my role to them has become more of the ATM, uh, the boxing match referee for the two boys that are still home, and, and taxi driver, and, uh, and everything in between. You know, the, I mean, it goes without saying, right, an integral part uh, of life is just growing up. And, and every parent wants their child to grow healthy. I think every parent, uh, every healthy parent, <laughs> uh, wants their child to learn how to function independently and responsibly, to have life skills, the necessary know-how and wisdom to navigate life and to enjoy life themselves as a mature adult. And as much as uh, there are times where I wish, and maybe you agree, and you're in this camp, that we'd wish we could go back in time or that we could just pause time, we understand that that's it's just part of life. God has designed our life to have this natural progression as we move on from infancy and toddlers and childhood into adulthood, teenage and then adulthood. And, and it's good. It's good for the the kids, and certainly it is good for the parents, for children to grow and become mature. And it's this section that we have been looking at where we realize that God the Father has the same desire for us as His kids, that you and I might grow spiritually mature. And here we read in, in chapter 6 of verse 1, this is why the writer then of Hebrews exhorts us hey, let's go on to maturity. And we noted together that this is what God desires of all of us, that we would grow spiritually mature. And inherent to the Christian life then is the call to spiritual growth. In order for us then to grow in our faith, and hopefully that's what we all want, we must leave behind then childhood things. And this is where the writer of Hebrews brings us. Verse 1, chapter 6, Therefore, leaving the discussion, leaving the teaching of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. That word, therefore, we've bumped into this word several times. We're going to continue to bump into this word as we make our way through Hebrews. But it ties us back to the previous thought in verses. And of course, I've said this before and I'll say it again. Anytime we come to that word, therefore, you want to ask, what therefore is therefore? What, what's the previous thoughts? What are the, what's the previous section of verses or chapter uh, so we can understand the context? 
the writer is carefully constructing his case to demonstrate how Jesus is completely superior to the Old Testament religious system. And the writer we noted, if you've been with us since the beginning of Hebrews, wasted no time from the opening of his letter to say how Jesus was greater than the prophets. He's greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. And now he's developing this whole thought of how Jesus is greater than Aaron. He's greater than the priesthood. And in fact, the entire sacrificial system. And he's in the, the middle of developing these thoughts where he then feels like he has to take a little bit of a time out. And he, he parks the topic. And then he basically specifically addresses the, the reader. And there are three areas of concern that he had. The first concern, and we looked at it last week in depth from verse 11 where he says, I have a lot more to say to you. It's a little bit hard to explain, not because the topic is hard, not because he doesn't have the ability to do so, but because they have become dull of hearing. And so one of the concerns was just that they had become dull of hearing. Basically, they, were, they had lost interest in listening and learning so that might, they might grow. And they and then were guilty of the spiritual regression. Not as though they just kind of stopped and were in an arrested development, but in fact they had stopped and they had begun to slide backwards where he says, and you need again for someone to teach you these things. And you need again to have to uh, you know, receive spiritual milk. He said, but instead you should be partaking of robust spiritual meat, not, the, not being content with rudimentary milk. And thirdly, there is a concern. There's this ignorance that existed amongst some of them. They were in a dangerous place of refusing the truth and, and, and having such an apathy to the truth they found themselves in a precarious place. And, and that's where we'll go next week, where he says it's impossible for those who were once enlightened. And he talks about how if, they've, if they fall away, then to renew themselves again to repentance. It's a very interesting section. Before he gets there, here's the second concern. He, he wants then uh, them, by proxy us, hey, we need to move on. He, he's made the case that spiritual milk is for babies. He's made the case that solid food is for the mature. And now here's the application of it. And it's very simple. The direction is then forward. The direction is that we need to move on. We need to leave that and keep going. Now we talked before, it's important for us to, to learn the basics of our faith, to understand what it is that we believe and why we believe it, to have a foundation. That's important. But we can't just live on that foundation. We have to build upon that foundation. So this sentence literally reads, therefore having then done that, let's leave once and for all the ABCs of the teaching of Christ. 
Again, when we were in kindergarten, it was appropriate to learn how to write and learn our ABCs in the alphabet. Our katakana and hiragana. You know, there are 26 letters in the American alphabet, but I only know 25 letters. I don't know why. <laughs> All right, there's your little, my little gifts there. We, we learn the ABC so that we can, well, read words and then sentences and then books. It's foundational and it's formational and they're necessary tools, but it enables us then to, to grow. It enables us then to enhance. It enables us to accelerate in our learning. We don't need to have to learn the alphabet over and over again. And this is what the writer is saying. And you master those basics so you can move on to mature and better things. You know, you've, you've learned to tie your shoes so that you can then play sports, lace up your cleats, enjoy complex things and enriching things. I mean, how silly it would be to be a part of a professional sports team. You know, uh, one of the kids that said uh, happy Father's Day was James's son, Taishi. He uh, just recently turned 18, but he plays, he plays professional soccer. He plays for the FC Tokyo team. I, I don't think that we need to go and say, hey, Taishi, let me teach you how to tie your shoes. And every day, let's learn how to tie your shoes. Here's the rabbit, chases the tree, let's go through the hole, right? That would be ridiculous, unnecessary. And again, this is what the writer is saying. It's unnecessary. We need to move on, grow up in our Christian faith. And I, I want to say this in love, gang, perhaps for some of us, this is a word of exhortation that it's time for us to grow up. It's time to stop playing games. It's time for us to stop making excuses. Move on. You know, the orientation of the Christian life is onward and it's upward. Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, and he says, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus to move onward, to move upward. And so he says, let's leave then the basics. Let's master them, but don't hang out there. You've learned to tie your shoes. You've learned the ABCs, but let's go. Let us go on to perfection. That, that phrase, let us go on, can be translated, let us be carried forward. What's interesting about that phrase coupled with the leaving is that that particular phrase, the verb tense, is passive. Let us go on. And it conveys the idea, uh, the imagery of a sailboat that then has to put up its sail and then the wind is the force that drives the boat forward. As though there's this If I can say it this way, this natural progression in which God wants to carry us forward. And it's a great reminder then that the work, it is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and in mine that brings us into maturity. 
I mean, just as God designed the physical body to, to grow naturally as uh, you know, a, a child, as a baby, then eats and drinks, and a child then eats and drinks and exercises and grows into maturity, and the body then grows in maturity, the same is true for our spiritual maturity too. As we are faithful to partake of God's Word, as we're faithful to then practice God's Word, we will grow, if you will, naturally in that. Now, that's a passive. Let let us be carried forward. And yet what's interesting is it's coupled with the first part of that where he says, let's leave the discussion. That's not passive, that's active. It's a fancy term in the Greek. It's called the aortis. It means a, a continual active action. It's a definite decision by the individual. And so I submit to you that those two things then work in harmony together, both an active and a passive. It reminds us then that the Christian faith is not simply, well, we're just going to let go and let God But it requires then us, a a personal ownership, a a personal initiative and responsibility on our part. Well, God is faithful. He will supply the wind. He will supply the empowerment that we need, but we have to put up the sail. Because we will not drift into maturity. We made that point, I think, two weeks ago. And again, all of this then is the, it's the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in your life and in mine. And it works in concert as we continue to press forward, yielded to the Spirit. This continual surrendering then, this continual dying to ourselves and picking up our cross and following the Lord daily. What is the measure of our maturity? We noted last week the measure of our maturity isn't just knowing these things. But it is the knowing and then the doing. It is the obedience to the word of God. That is the measure. Where we learn what God says and then we apply what God says. It's it's us saying yes to the spirit and no to our sinful flesh. Our maturity is not a product of our self-efforts. But it's our surrender to the work of the Spirit in our life. Yielded to Him. And so he says, let us go on. Let's be carried forward. Carry forward to where? Well, he says to perfection. To perfection. Let's move on from kindergarten. Let's graduate from this. Let's go to higher learning. Let's go from the simple things to to subjects of substance. From From the 101 classes to the higher upper division classes. You know, I I had a joke about chemistry, but I didn't think I'd get a reaction. So yeah. yeah. What is the degree that God wants us to achieve? Where is the Lord bringing us? Well, we read here, let's go on to perfection. 
Now, when we read that word perfection, don't think, oh, I'm, I'm going to be perfect. That, ultimately, that is the goal. Ultimately, when we graduate, our, our final graduation from this life into eternity, we will, uh, if you will, be finally, you know, completely perfect as the, as the Lord is perfect, and we will be perfect in heaven. But until that day, we are works in progress. Until that day, we are going from glory to glory as God is working in us. And so here, what does it mean then? Perfection then means to be complete or mature. It means to be fully grown. The same word was used later on in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where we're exhorted to fix our eyes on Jesus, for He is the author and the perfecter or the finisher. It's the same word. So what is our goal then? Well, our, uh, more knowledge, more information. Here's a great reminder of our goal. What does God want to work in our life and through our life? Isn't that just would be more head knowledge? What, what's the goal of the Lord? What should be our goal? Well, it's to be more Christ-like. Right? Christ-likeness is our goal. The transformation of our life is that process. It's the goal, being molded and shaped into the image of the Son. You know, the Bible portrays the work of God in our lives in various ways. He is the, the vine dresser that tends his, to the branches. Jesus says, I am the true vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. And then he says, and the Father is the vine dresser and he prunes and he cuts and he lifts up and he takes away. And so the work of the Lord is described that way. But the work of the Lord is also described as God is the master potter. The, the master artisan and craftsman and we are a lump of clay sitting on the potter's wheel. And round and round we go. And as the master potter then, uh, you know, puts pressure and stretches and pulls and works and he does his work in our life. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, we are being transformed to the same image of Christ from glory to glory just by the Spirit of the Lord. And then we're also exhorted not to be conformed to this world. You know, Josh taught this a couple weeks ago from Romans 12 too, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so it's the work of God's all-sufficient and all-active grace in our lives, but it empowers us to advance. It empowers us to move on from the basics and make progress. Again, can I say this in love? Let's not be, let's not be easily content with the present status of our spiritual progress. But press forward. Let us press forward. Let us move on to Christ-likeness. He goes on to say, and not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. And then he lists these other things in verse 2 as well. Now, the writer here changes, notice with me, the analogy from bodies, 
from babies in bottles, from milk and meat, now to buildings. He's talking about foundations. I had a great joke about construction, but I'm still working on it. Do you guys know I'm building a house? I'm building a house that the first floor is going great, but the second floor, that's another story. Now, the writer is saying, hey, let's make sure we, we've laid the right foundation, but don't go and relay the foundation repeatedly. It's unnecessary. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says the, the foundation of our faith is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. No other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, that is Jesus Christ. This is where we begin. This is the foundational truths of who Christ is, what he has done for us. And notice with me here, the writer gives us six things. And these are not new to the Hebrew Christians. These were not new concepts, even to, to, the, to the Jewish faith. They'd be familiar with these terms. But they didn't have the the fuller picture, the completed picture. It was, if you will, almost like uh, a coloring book that had all of the outline, but the rest of the picture wasn't filled in yet. The Jews, God gave them the outline, but they didn't have the substance yet. Christ then comes in and fulfills all of that provides the color for all of the pictures that they have been given. And so the writer's exhortation is that once you've come to the reality of who Christ is, once you understand what Christ has done for you, then you need to move on from the temporary systems. You move on from the, the beta structures that pointed you to Christ and then pursue Christ. It's to leave the shadows and the types and the pictures and the, you know, the, the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Paul tells the Galatians, they, they were like a, a school teacher. It was like a tutor that then brought you to Jesus. So leave the old religious system and rest in the reality of the new covenant. The new contract of God's grace provided only through Jesus Christ. Again, we, through the summer, our church usually shrinks, as a lot of churches in Okinawa do, especially that have, uh, you know, the military that are part of the church body. And, and part of our shrinking down is just because of PCS season. People end up leaving. Part of it, a big part of it is because of of summer vacations. Uh, and in this season, there's a part of it where people are deployed, um, you know, across all the different branches. And so some of our family members are deployed right now. We want to pray for them and pray for their families and support their families as best we can. And, and for some, there's this thing, uh, you know, for some of them that have younger children, I've seen before, maybe you've seen or maybe you have this as well, where they, they'll take pictures of their, uh, the mom or the dad 
<clears throat> and they'll print them on pillows. And so they'll have this kind of a comfort item, uh, a pillow buddy, I think they're called, where you can have a picture of your loved one on this pillow, and the child can then hug it and be comforted uh, by the picture of their dad or their mom until, you know, the parent comes back, until they return. But can you imagine if a child had that pillow with the picture of their loved one, and, but then the parent returned, mom came back, dad came back, and, and the kid was just still holding on to the pillow and finding comfort in the pillow and finding comfort in the picture, talking to the picture, hugging the picture. We, we, would, we would plead with the kid. We would plead with the child and say, listen, you don't need that anymore. That's just a picture. That was just temporary. Look, dad is here. Mom is here. The real thing is here. You can put that away. Hug the real thing. Engage with the real thing. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you no longer need the pictures you no longer need the, the tangible substitutes that pointed you to the Messiah. The Messiah is here. Christ has come. You can engage with the real thing. Have a relationship with the real thing. And so you don't need them to go back to the pictures, to go back to the, the shadows, to go back to the outline. To do so would be... It would be forfeiting, it would be foolish. You would be abandoning what was permanent and perfect to then go back to temporary and imperfect. Of course, his conclusion is then that's going backwards. In fact, we're going to see in the next verses that the the writer actually presses the issue a little bit more. It becomes very serious and sobering, the danger then of knowing the truth and yet rejecting it. Knowing all of these things and yet saying, ah, I, I don't want any of that. I'm going to just stay in the shadows. I'm going to just stay in the outline. Listen, gang, the only remedy, well, I'd say the only remedy a remedy, the remedy against falling away is moving forward. We, we can think of our faith in Christ almost like, like riding a bicycle in the sense that if you keep forward motion, if you keep pedaling, if you keep in movement, you're going to experience stability. Any of you ever stand up paddleboard? It's the same principle. If you go stand up paddleboard and then you get on the board and then you just try to stand there and keep your balance, it's much more harder than if you just take a first paddle and keep moving. Because once you're in motion, it's easier to stay stable. And that's true in a bicycle too, right? I mean, you can balance for a while, but eventually if you're just there, you're going to fall over. And our faith is the same way. Stability comes in forward motion. If we just stand there, we're going to fall over sooner or later. But what does he mean then to uh, this foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God? 
six foundational truths that the writer lists out. And, and the question then for us is, oh, do, do we know these? Can we say that we hold these firm and, and we've grown from them? Of repentance from dead works, of faith towards God, the doctrine of baptisms or washings, your, your translation might read, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and number six, of eternal judgment. Here's a question. How are we on those topics? Not, not them, but how are we? Are we solid on this? We can move on to the next section. One way to consider these is to group them in pairs because they do seem to go together. The, the first two, there at the end of verse 1, of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. They, one way you can group them is you can say, well, the, these, are, these deal with our salvation. These are the basics of our salvation. The first things that we come to when we come to Christ. Repentance and belief. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, But God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of Jesus Christ depart from iniquity or repent from sin. Right, when we come to Christ, we have repented. We have turned away from our old life of sin. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15 tells us that Jesus came preaching the kingdom of, of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he said, the time is fulfilled, the time is now, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That Greek word for repentance, it's a compound word. It's the word metanoa. And it means to change your mind. But it's not just change your mind. It's not just change your thoughts. It's the idea of you, you change your way of thinking, which means then you change your way of doing. You're convinced that the path that you were once on is not the right path. It's the path that leads, right? It's the broad way that leads to destruction. And as the Lord then reveals His love and His truth of, of His grace, of His forgiveness found in only Christ, then we turn from our sinful life. We turn on that path and we turn towards the Lord. And by God's grace, we come to realize that our life of sin is not good. But God is good. And throughout then the New Testament, as it uses this phrase, it's clear that metanoia means much more than just merely a change of, one mind, of one's mind. It includes a, a complete change of heart and attitude, of choices, of direction. But notice here, what's the foundation? It's repentance from dead works. Specifically, from dead works. Now remember the context, the, the original audience, they came out of, of being very religious people. They had the Mosaic Law. And many of them prided themselves on the fact that they were... Uh, children of Abraham, 
And many of them made the mistake to think that just because they were children of Abraham, that they then automatically had a ticket into heaven. And so even Paul, who writes and you know, recorded for us in, in the book of Romans, tells us, no, that's not what brings us into salvation. But they lived according to these rules and rituals of, of Judaism. But here we see that everything that we do apart from a relationship with Christ, even if you're really religious, as they were very religious, here's the summary of that. It's dead works. It's worthless. Our works will never bring us life. They do not bring us into a right standing with God. Again, we, we've talked about this before, and the writer will come back to this. Uh, our works, if you will, they follow our salvation. They are the fruits of our salvation. They are the evidence of our faith. We've been saved by God's grace, Christ alone, and faith alone, by grace alone, according to Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. But then he created us in Christ Jesus for good works that we then should walk in them and do them, engage them. But our good works cannot earn us or we don't not deserve salvation as a result of those things. And so the Bible says, well, we've learned that we have to repent from dead works, turn from our self-efforts, turn from our sin, and then turn towards God, a faith towards God. And so repentance and faith go together. It's a turning away and a turning towards. Some might even argue that that happens. If you're going to turn towards God, that means then you're going to turn away from sin. If you turn away from sin, then you're going to turn towards the Lord. It's recorded in Acts 20, 21, Paul says, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith, repentance and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, recorded in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you that he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. Now the writer, of course, is going to have a lot more to say about faith and what it looks like. 31 times through the book of Hebrews, faith will be mentioned. We're going to get a whole two chapters, just, and when we get to chapter 11 and 12, dedicated to to faith and what faith looks like and how it's fleshed out in a person's life. In testimonies, we call it the hall of faith, all through chapter 11. But here the context is the basics. It's Christianity 101. The beginning of our salvation when we come to Christ, what well, includes then repentance and belief, repenting from our old life, and faith towards God. He goes on to say, 
of doctrine of baptisms or washings and of the laying on of hands. These are foundational things that we should know, that we should have solid. He's saying we should have this, we should master these things so we can move on from these things. To know them and then experience them, to do them. If the first two had to do with our salvation, I would submit that these two have to do with our, our, our identity and our community in the body of Christ. Now, some translations read the doctrine or the teaching of washings. And both of those things, if you, um, are the idea of, of, they're in the plural, washings or baptisms. Again, for the Jews, there, there were several types of ceremonial washings that they could or would adhere to. It was part of their culture. It was part of their custom. It was even part of the Old Testament law, what God had prescribed for them to do. It was integral to their worship and their daily life, in fact. If you, uh, you know, if and when you come with us to Israel, there's still places that we'll go and, and there's still where you'll see, you know, ceremonial baths and washings that, uh, fountains that are there. And so they had a familiarity with this. And just as God designed the entire system to be this giant storybook that points us to Christ, the elements of the story and the, the events of the story of the Old Testament, those are symbolic too. We can look at certain things and say, oh, that's a picture of Christ as well. The tabernacle and the temple, the ark that Noah built, and the ark of the covenant. Those are all symbolic. They all point us to Christ. The sacrificial system, the feasts and the festivals. It's amazing. And the writer of Hebrews will help us to understand that a little bit better. But, you know, all of the various ceremonial washings, in fact, Point us to the purity and the holiness, the, the identity that God desired in His people. Why, why was the priest, when a, a called into service, anointed both with oil and with blood? A symbol of the, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the oil and the blood being cleansed, placed on the earlobe and the fingertip and the toe. Symbolic of then, of the hearing and the working and the going of the priest. And so, these washings and similarly baptism then speaks of purification and separation and identification of God's people. And so there were these various washings that you can look at and, and, and how they symbolized and represented the, the, the certain parts of of, you know, the character of God. And, and similarly, when we look at baptisms, and I want to submit to you that the Bible talks about three different baptisms. There is a spiritual transaction that at our conversion. And when you and I come to faith in Christ, it's described in so many different ways. 
It's described as us being born again. It's described as us being redeemed. It's described as us being purchased, adopted, transferred, transformed. These beautiful ways, and all describing the same transaction. And baptism is included in that. When we come to faith, we are, the spiritual transaction happens where at our conversion, we are then placed into the body of Christ. Christ then dwells in us and we then dwell in the Lord. It is the baptism of our salvation. It's a spiritual transaction. It's the one baptism that Paul writes about in Ephesians 4. He says there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, and he says, and one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And so that is the baptism then of our coming to Christ. It's a one-time placement into Christ. Where Paul says, now that we're in Christ, all the old things are done away with. They are gone, and we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. We've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. This is our uh, positional sanctification. Fancy term, this is our justification. We stand justified before the Lord because of what Christ has done for us. We weren't holy, but now we are holy. Not because of what we have done, not because of our rituals or religion or our good works. It's everything because of what Christ has done. And so we come then into that truth. And we stand in that truth. We're baptized in that. That's one. The second baptism is water baptism. And that is primarily a physical transaction. Of course, I believe there's a spiritual component to it. It's certainly an emotional thing. It's a thing to be celebrated. But primarily, it's a physical transaction. In the, old, excuse me, in the New Testament, a person who responded to the gospel, as they repented of their sins, as they received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, Often we find then that's demonstrated in a ceremony by being baptized in a body of water. And this is what we do when we go to the beach. Right? Water baptism is the outward symbol of our spiritual baptism in Christ. It is the outward demonstration, is the outward ceremony of the spiritual cleansing that we've received. Something's happened inside of us, and now we're going to demonstrate that outwardly. And it speaks of purification, of holiness. It speaks of our identification. Just as Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected, us going under the water is a symbol of that, of us dying to our old self, of coming into new life and resurrected to new life. I think we all understand it's not water baptism that cleanses us of our sin. It's not water baptism that saves us. That's not how we're cleansed. You know, I used to be addicted to soap, but I'm clean now. Right. 
Listen, water baptism is just an outward symbol. It's a ceremony. And so there's our baptism into the body of Christ. That's a spiritual transaction. There's the water baptism. This is the doctrine of baptisms. This is the doctrine of washings. Now here's the third one I want to submit to you. And I realize different people have different ideas on this, but the third baptism is also a spiritual baptism. It has different descriptors. Just like when we come to salvation, when we, when we come to faith in Christ, we're born again, we're adopted, we're um, redeemed, we're regenerated. Spiritual baptism has the descriptor of being infilled with the Holy Spirit or the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, 5, that John truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He goes on to say in Acts 1, 8, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. Acts 1.8. Later on we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. Later on from there we read again in Acts chapter 4, verse 31. And, and when they had prayed, the place that they had assembled, then this is after Pentecost, by the way, the place was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the Word of God with boldness. And by the way, there are those who say, oh, the, the sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is you know, speaking in tongues, speaking in these different languages. Some would even go as far to say that's the sign of being saved. I, 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 would, I would politely and kindly disagree with both of those things. We see here in Acts 4.31, the Holy Spirit filled and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So it certainly includes those other dynamic gifts and manifestations, but they're not exclusive to those things. But I do believe that the Scriptures teach there is a separate spiritual dynamic from our salvation. There is a unique empowering of God's Spirit upon our life. That word for, and he shall, you shall receive power, it's the word dunamis, where we get the word dynamite or dynamic from. It is the empowering of our, of our practical sanctification. Well, we have positional sanctification. The Spirit of God has come inside of us. We're justified, and now we're to live out that life victorious, life joyful. And again, what, what, was the, what was the primary way in which the Spirit then was going to manifest Himself through the lives after empowering them? He, they were going to be His witnesses, the witnesses of Christ. Jesus says, here's how the world will know you, by your love for one another. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, who we talked about last week, very gifted, and yet he corrects them and says, it's not giftedness, that necessarily equals maturity. You can do all of these things, but if you don't have love, then you're just a, you're a noisy gong, right? You're a clanging cymbal. And so I, I, would, I would submit to you that the, that the main way in which we experience the dynamic of God's Spirit in our life is that we can love people with the love of God. It is the fruit of God's Spirit.
enables us to love others and resist the temptations of our flesh and our sin. And so to understand the doctrine of baptisms is important. Because often I think they're, they're because of abuse, because of misinformed instruction of the spiritual gifts. In fact, it's one of the things that the writer, you know, or excuse me, Paul tells us, let's not be ignorant of these things. And yet, so often we find that often the church is misinformed. We want to learn it biblically and apply it biblically. He goes on to say in the laying of hands, of course, the laying of hands is one way in which the, the empowering of the Spirit was received. It too was a symbolic gesture. It symbolized community. It symbolized the sharing of blessings that came from God. Symbolized the calling of God upon a person's life. This past Sunday night, we laid hands on Alex. Nothing supernatural about that. It wasn't like we imparted to him something, you know, from me. It's just a recognition of love, of community, of celebration. So the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, and he says of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment, and I'll go quickly. The last two deal with the future. The first two deal with our coming to faith. The second two deal with our community, our identification in Christ. And these last two deal when we depart from this life. And I did have one last dad joke about immortality. It never gets old. The Bible teaches there are two resurrections. There's the resurrection of the saved and there's the resurrection of the lost. You can mark this and read it later. John chapter 5, verses 24 through 29. Jesus talks about those who believe in his word and believe in him will have everlasting life. And to have everlasting life means that we will not come into his judgment. We'll pass from death into life. And he goes on to say, listen, don't marvel that I say these things. Because the dead, when they hear my voice, they're going to come forth. Some to the resurrection of life and others to the resurrection of condemnation. You fast forward to the book of Revelation and there's this scene in heaven in chapter 20. John writes and says, there are those who then resurrected, and he says, this is the first resurrection. And judgment then was given. And judgment is coming. For those who are in Christ Jesus, our judgment is not a judgment of our salvation. If anything, it's, a, it's, a, it's an award ceremony, if you will. What we did with what Christ has given us what we did with our gifts and our talents, that will be evaluated. But for those who have remained in their sins, who have remained refusing and rejecting the Lord's grace, well, they are going to stand before the judgment, the eternal judgment of God. And Jesus says it is a default condemnation. And then he closes, he says, and this we will do, this let us do if God permits. King, life gives us a thousand examples of the need to act and the knowledge that we have before any benefit is received. 
It's not enough to know a telephone number. If you want to talk to the person, you've got to dial it or tell Siri to call for you at least, right? It's not enough to know the price tag of something. If you want it, you have to pay for it. The Hebrew believers knew the basics. What they need now is a personal commitment to it. And that is why the reader then urges them to move from learning to living. This is the application for us too. To live out what we've learned. We were reminded of the sovereignty of God in this one verse. We can do this. We will do this if God permits. And let me just say, I, I don't think this means that God does not want them to mature past the ABCs. Hopefully establish that God wants that. He wants that for all of us. And God wants us to grow in our faith. And so if we want that, if we want what God wants, it's going to happen. But it is this ominous hint. The writer is going to pivot at this point to talk about spiritual dullness. If you remain in that place, uh, it is a precarious place. And he will become very strong in his caution, exhortation, to understand that, you know, for the reader to fully heed at this juncture. Because there seems to be this point that if anyone persists in, you know, or I should say persists in uh, pursuing a life away from the Lord, at some point, it's going to put them beyond the reach of the Holy Spirit. We will unpack those verses next Sunday. Sands, dad jokes, though. All right. <laughs> Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for your exhortation for us to move on, to grow up. Lord, practically, it's good for us. We've we got to stop playing games. We need to move on from the basics. And Lord, I pray that we would grab a hold of these foundational things to understand them and what they then mean for our life today to experience you in your fullness to have assurance then of our salvation to what it, what it means then for us to persevere in our faith as we press forward and upward to the call and prize of Christ Jesus God I pray that all of us would grow up together when we grab a hold of fuller things and mature things. And so, Lord, just commit this study to you and may your spirit speak and lead it and guide us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.